Galatians is one of the New Testament epistles. Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia. And um, before we jump into the text or read it, permit me to pray. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill this place. Lord, that your presence would be tangible here this morning. Lord, that you would create within each of us an awareness of response to your word, our need for responding to your word. Direct our hearts and our minds, O Lord. Direct our thoughts, the intentions of our hearts. Lord, it's my prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my thoughts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Remember God's Grace. Remember God's Grace. And in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we find ourselves this morning with Paul writing an introduction to the church of churches of Galatia. But before we read the text, the book of Galatians has been given several titles by different scholars, different theologians who have read and who have studied the book. Some of those titles are the the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty, the Battle Cry of the Reformation. Another title is the Christian's Declaration of Independence. But what we have in the book of Galatians, or the letter of Galatians rather, is we have an incredible letter to the churches of Galatia, where Paul lays out the necessity for Christians to remain faithful to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul lays out the necessity for Christians to remain faithful to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because it's the, it's the gospel alone, this gospel that Paul is, is referring to, this particular gospel alone which creates new life and brings unity among Christians. And for Paul, it's this true gospel alone that transforms their lives, the lives of the Christian community. It is the hope of this gospel that transforms lives by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So this is what Paul is going to establish as he works his way through the six chapters of the book of Galatians. All of this, all of it, is dependent on the sacrificial, redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul goes on to contend that Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of man was actually validated when God raised him from the dead. That's what he says in the very beginning, verse 1, who raised him from the dead. And so it's God's work of validation in raising Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so it was, a, it was a simple and a profound message of hope that Paul was commissioned to preach to the ends of the earth and throughout the known world. And it was during Paul's first missionary journey. So think back with me just for a minute to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, we see Paul and Barnabas going on their first missionary journey. And as they're on this missionary journey, there's there's great fruit that they begin seeing through the preaching of the gospel. In fact, they established four churches, and these are the 
the four churches of Galatia, that southern region of Galatia, the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So these four fledgling churches were made up primarily of Gentiles, but there were some believing Jews who had come to faith and they had joined together with these Gentiles, seeing the, the hope of this unity in Christ, that now, now we're no longer Jew or Gentile, but we're together in Christ. And so during the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had performed many miracles. And these miracles are attested to in Acts 13 and 14. And and these miracles gave testimony to the validity and the power and the message of the hope of the gospel. But it was also in these same towns where some had become violently angry. Some Jews had chased Paul from one city to the next until finally they caught up with him and turned the crowd against him and Barnabas. And in Lystra, they drug Paul out of the city, stoned him, and left him for dead. He was within inches of losing his life. And it says the disciples came to him, he got up, and he went back into the city. So this is the guy that's writing to the churches of Galatia. And this is the setting upon which the church of Galatia first heard the gospel. Through miracles that were being worked, through, through an understanding of this simple yet profound message about Jesus Christ dying for sin and bringing us into God's family. This was the message of hope. It's still the message of hope that we have today. It's the same gospel. And that's one of the things that we need to see as we read through the book of Galatians. So these are the churches that Paul is writing to. He's writing to them, and and, and through much effort and and near loss of life, Paul, along with Barnabas, had worked tirelessly to establish these congregations. And now, only a short while after they have left, he's received word that things are spiraling downward and out of control. He's received word that even his apostolic calling has been is being challenged and, and is, is, is seriously being questioned. And it's even reported that some have turned away from the foundational truth of the gospel. There was this group of people who had come from Jerusalem. They were Jews, and they were known as Judaizers. And they came in, and they were, they were teaching something to counter the gospel message that Paul had preached. And so he preached one thing, but they were coming in behind him and saying, no, that's not the complete story. You've got to believe this and this in order to truly have salvation. And so Paul's immediate response to this disturbing news is his letter to the Galatians. So I want you to follow along in verses 1 through 9 as I read. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In verses 1 through 5, Paul emphasizes God's great rescue. God's great rescue. And, and, and what he wants us to see is that for Christians, we are to live lives that are centered around Christ. We get focused on a lot of different things as we engage in Christian ministry or uh, are we, we engage in our, Christian, in our, in our vocation. We, we get focused on many different things, but, but I think what Paul would, would, would say is he's calling us back to keep Christ as the central focus in the life of the Christian. You know, this great rescue that Paul focuses on, it, it deals with Christ and him coming. Of course, we know where that's going. But as I thought about this, <clears throat> in comparison to the Galatians, you know, uh, one, one of the things I thought about was when I was in Pollock, there was a boy, that was, his name was Connor. And Connor had wandered out of his house, and he was playing as a young boy, maybe, I don't know, four. Uh, and he, he wandered out of the house, kind of wandered into the woods and got lost. And so uh, they come, uh, the neighbors came knocking on our door asking if we had seen Connor. And so I said, no, we haven't seen him, but we'll help you look for him. And so we go out and we begin looking, trying to find Connor and he's nowhere to be found and so I head off into the woods behind the house and long story short found Connor Uh, he was just sitting there fearful not knowing what to do or where to turn he didn't know who was going to find him or anything it was getting dark and so so I found him brought him back up and of course uh, his parents were elated we were all really happy and elated that we had found him Uh, and so I brought him out of the woods he was lost he was lost, and he didn't know how he was going to be found. He knew he was in close proximity to his house, but he didn't know where to turn. He didn't know which direction to go. And in one sense, you might describe the Galatians in a similar vein. They were newly converted to Christ, but they weren't sure where to turn. They weren't sure what to do. They had these false teachers that had come in and they had begun, they had begun teaching false doctrine and, and adding things to the gospel. And they weren't spiritually mature enough to know how to refute them. And so it's in this way that we see God's great rescue for a people. We might even say that parallels our own rescue, that we at one point in life were, were lost without hope, didn't know where to turn, but God in his great grace and mercy reached down into our lives, illuminated our eyes to see the hope and the truth of the gospel and called us into relationship with him. This is the true grace of God that he would do this work through the incredible gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, the gospel, it simply means good news, right? That's, that's what gospel means. It means good news. And this is incredibly good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom, as a payment for the sins of all who would believe in him. 
so that we might have eternal life. And this great transaction was made. So, so God's great rescue is seen in verses 1 through 5. And first we see provision of the apostolic gospel. Provision of the apostolic gospel. We see it in verses 1 through 2. Now that may sound like a mouthful, but it's really simple. The apostolic gospel is the apostle has written down and communicated and preached this good news. And because the apostle has written it down, it has become authoritative. So Paul begins by asserting his apostolic calling. His apostleship, he says in verse 1, wasn't from men, nor was it through men. It wasn't determined by any man. It wasn't determined by the Jew, Jewish council, right, that we read about later in Acts. It wasn't determined by the church. In fact, he was on his way to persecute the church when Jesus Christ revealed himself to him on the Damascus road and set him apart and called him into service. And so we have Paul asserting his apostolic calling. Paul's claiming divine authority when he says that Jesus has called him as an apostle. The gospel he preached was divine speech. The gospel they believed was divine revelation. And so the word apostle, it was a specific word in a specific title that was reserved for a select few in the New Testament. It wasn't a word that could be applied generally to all Christians, like we would say saint or brother, right? Those can be applied across the board generally to anyone who's a Christian. Anyone who is a Christian is a saint. We might say brother or sister. But not all are apostles. And so it was reserved for the 12, those whom Jesus selected out of his disciples. And for Paul, because the risen Christ had personally appointed him. Paul mentions his calling, his unique calling, several times. You can read it in the book of Acts, or you can see Paul's testimony later in the book of Acts. You can see how he gives testimony to, to what Jesus had done for him and in him. Uh, or you can turn to 1 Corinthians. You can see in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, where Paul speaks of it, or in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9. Listen to what Paul says. Last of all, as to one, speaking of himself, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Jesus appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And so here's Paul claiming his apostleship at the beginning of his letter to the Galatians. So Paul's apostleship was and is important. And it's important because an apostle of Jesus Christ spoke with the same authority that Christ himself speaks with. He was divinely commissioned by God and uniquely chosen by Jesus to carry on his mission in the world. And the same authority, get this, the same authority that Jesus gave Paul to carry his mission throughout the early known world, the same authority is the authority vested in the writings of the apostles, which is where we get our New Testament. It's the basis of our New Testament. In fact, Paul himself authored 13 epistles within our New Testament. But, you know, even today, some seek to discredit God's word, saying that the apostolic witness of the New Testament isn't correct. They pick and choose what they want to believe from Scripture. Or they say 
You've heard this maybe. Uh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the Bible. Or others may say things like, well, that's Paul's view. Paul was a man. I'm a man too with the same nature, and my view is very different. One theologian that's actually said this is C.H. Dodd, who writes in his introduction to his commentary for the Epistle of Romans. He says, sometimes I think Paul is wrong, and I have ventured to say so. But here's the thing. We have no liberty, no grounds to make such a claim. And by doing so, here's what we're doing. We're placing ourselves alongside the authority of God's word. Their written words today are authoritative because they're given by inspiration of Christ himself. You see, this is an authority issue. And the authority issue says we we have no authority to change God's word. We can only submit to the truth of God's word. So the point here is that God's word is as authoritative today and has as much to say to us today as it did when it was penned, when Paul spoke it, when Paul preached it. So this is what we need to see and understand Even as we read Scripture and apply it to our own lives, when we approach Scripture, are we approaching it as God's living Word? Are we approaching it to say, God, your Word has something to teach me? It's your authority. I'm submitting to your authority, and I'm ready to learn what you are communicating to me. All of this is founded on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This is the validation that proves God is the one who is able and powerful to raise Christ himself because Christ has been risen from the dead. And what God has said is worthy of submission from our lives. And so in verses 1 and 2 here, Paul gives this introduction that he's an apostle. But he makes this clarification that it's not through man. It's not because of men. It's, it's from God himself God is the one who has called him. And that's important for us to see today because it's important in our lives for us to understand that this is God's authoritative word and it has relevance and it speaks into our lives what Paul has written and recorded. I love how in the introduction Paul drops the line, and all the brothers who are with me, you see that there in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me, he gives this introduction Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me. In other words, what he's saying is all those who are, who are what I am writing to you and communicating to you, it's not just me. Though I'm an apostle, and this is God's divine word, this is also the consensus of the community of faith. And in this one line that Paul tags on here, he's saying that he's not an island. He's saying that he's not independent of other believers, that he's not living life outside of the confines of the community of faith. He's not some super apostle who doesn't need community. I think what we could just briefly see there is that life in Christ must be connected to a community of faith because Paul's deeply connected to other Christians as we should be. But not only do we see provision, the apostolic gospel, and the provision of God's authority and his his word, we see provision of amazing grace in verses 3 and 4. Provision of amazing grace in verses 3 and 4. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you know, this, we read the introduction to Paul's letters, and oftentimes we think, okay, he says grace and peace in every one of them. So it's just kind of this throwaway word. It's like some greeting that we might walk up to somebody and say, hey, how's it going? And not mean, how's it going? Don't sit there and tell me how things are going in your life. That's not the reason I'm saying how's it going, right? That's not what Paul's doing here. When Paul's writing this, he's saying, I want you to understand, Galatian church, that I'm speaking grace and peace to you. And these two words, grace and peace, are loaded with theological significance. They're loaded with truth about who God is and how he's revealed himself to his people. It's not meaningless words. So it summarizes, this phrase summarizes the good news of salvation. And that is that salvation through Jesus Christ reconciles sinners, us, to God and does so by giving us peace with God. So this salvation, this good news, is that now we can have peace with God. But not only can we have peace with God, because we have peace with God through Christ, we can now have peace with one another. And so as Paul lays this out in the rest of Galatians, he's going to be laying out this understanding of of unity now for the church. And one new family of God, it transcends ethical bounds, boundaries. But not only does it have give us peace with God, give us peace with peace with one another, it even brings peace within. Peace within. Peace is the nature of salvation. When we come to faith in Christ, there is a great peace that comes upon our soul. The peace of Christ that passes all understanding. So that in the midst of the greatest trials in life, we can have a calm peace and assurance that God is there. That he has not left us. That he's with us. That he walks with us. That his spirit resides within us. Peace is the nature of salvation in God's grace. Hear this. God's grace is the source of our salvation. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor of blessing upon your life, upon my life. How did God show his unmerited favor to the Galatians? And how does God still show his unmerited favor toward Christians today? It's a good question. How did God show his unmerited favor toward the Galatians? And how does God still show his unmerited favor toward Christians today? Look at verse 4. It's Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Well, how does God show us unmerited favor? How did God show the Galatians unmerited favor? Jesus died to rescue us. Jesus died to rescue us. This is God's great rescue. That we were bound to this present evil age. What was he rescuing us from? The present evil age. This is Paul's way of speaking of Satan's tyrannical rule and influence over the world. 
It's similar to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. Or later, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? So what's he saying? This present evil age, it has this binding effect. It has this captivating effect that keeps us in bondage to sin, that that covers the eye so that we can't see the revelation of the glory of God through Christ. But there's a plan to counter that. And the plan to counter that is the church. It's these very Galatian believers. It's, it's cross point. It's the church global. It's the church eternal. And so what he's saying here is that the world is under the sway of Satan's blinding influence, causing all who are outside of Christ to remain blind to God's free gift of salvation. Scripture's clear that as long as we remain in sin and without Christ, we are in bondage to sin. We are actually slaves to sin, Scripture says. So God's grace to us, get this, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? We didn't do anything to make ourselves better, uh, more presentable before God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We had not taken one step toward God when he reconciled us. We were just fine, blinded in our own unbelief, in our own waywardness. Christ died for us, who gave himself for our sins. Look, he gave himself for our sins voluntarily. He stepped down from glory, walked this earth, and gave himself for our sins. And it says he did it to deliver us. That's the word rescue. He did it to rescue us from captivity to Satan. He did it to rescue us out of bondage. What a glorious gospel. This is God's grace to rescue us from suffering the wrath of God because of our sin, which we were deserving of. And it's through his sacrificial death, Jesus' sacrificial death, that we should live a new life. It's through Jesus' sacrificial death that the life we are to live is the life of walking by the Spirit in the midst of this present evil age. God doesn't want to take us out of the world No, instead, he wants to transform us as we're living in the world so that we live differently in the here and now, so that we live now like we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Paul's saying to the Galatian Christians and to us, don't get sidetracked. Let Christ be the heartbeat of your life. This is God's great rescue. 
The second point for us to see this morning, there's only one way to know God. There's only one way to know God. In verses 6 through 9, Paul really gets to uh, the occasion or the purpose of writing his letter. You know, and one of the things that we see as, as we read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament is we realize that Paul wasn't one to pull punches, right? Paul simply stated things as they were. When he confronted an issue, he was as bold as a lion. And so here in verses 6 through 9, we see the heartbeat of why Paul has written to the Galatian churches, and he speaks exclusively of the only way that a person can enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, any attempt to know God outside of the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ fails monumentally, he's saying. Any other attempt to know the God of the Bible. The story, a story was reported in the Cape Town newspaper, uh, Cape Times, from South Africa. And on March 23rd, 2004, a man surprised nine burglars who were burglarizing his home. He ran out, and eight, eight of the robbers got away. But the homeowner managed to push one of the robbers into the pool. When he pushed him into the pool, he then realized that the robber couldn't swim, and he was flailing his arms, and he was drowning. And so the homeowner, true story, jumps into the pool, saves the robber, pulls him out, and as the robber gathers himself, decides he's going to pull a knife on the homeowner and call for his friends to come back. So what's the homeowner do? Pushes him back in the pool. That's right. (laughs) True story. I don't know what happened at the end. That was the story that I was able to read. You know, in some ways, the Galatian story parallels the astonishing report of the burglar who having been rescued from certain death, turned against the very one who rescued him, right? That's what we see in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, but, but really, there's not another gospel. There's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but there really isn't another one. There's only one true gospel. There's only one true way. So we see there's no other gospel for salvation in verses 6 through 7. And what's going on in the Galatian churches is that there's this group called the Judaizers who've come into the congregation and they've altered the gospel message. I alluded to this in the beginning. They've said, in order to complete the work of salvation in your life and truly be God's people, you've got to look to Moses. You've got to look to the law. You have to have circumcision for the men, and you have to obey the laws of the Torah. In other words, here's what they're saying. Jesus' sacrificial death was the beginning of your salvation, but to complete it, you must do other things. It's not sufficient. But here's the problem. To add anything to the requirements for salvation aside from the finished work of Christ on the cross actually detracts, it subtracts from the saving grace of Christ. So to say that we must do something else in addition to Jesus' death on the cross 
means that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient for salvation because there's still something else that's required. You see, but what the Bible says is that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for salvation. And that's what Paul is driving home as he's writing to the Galatians. You see, Paul says, adding to the gospel that he has preached is heresy, and it's condemnable. He actually calls the Galatians deserters. Look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. This word desert, it's the word for traitor. It's the one who has actually turned his back. It's known as a, a, a turncoat. But it often speaks of those in the military who soldiers have transferred their allegiance from one side to the other side. Get the picture of what Paul is calling these who have believed a different gospel. They've actually turned against God by believing something that really isn't good news at all. Verse 7, not that there's another one. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And in verse 6, look, he says, you've turned against him who called you in the grace of Christ. It's not that you've just, you've not believed the Bible, right? You've not believed the word that was preached. No, it's that you've actually turned against God, against the one who called you in a relationship with him. So he calls them deserters. They've begun working to achieve their own salvation, thinking that if they can carry out the demands of the law, then they somehow earn God's favor to a greater degree. And I'm not even talking about those who have come in teaching the false doctrine. Verses 8 and 9, Paul speaks to them that they're to be cursed, and we'll look at that in a moment. But I'm thinking primarily about those who are within the church of Galatia. They, they've gotten sidetracked. They've lost, they've lost their sense of having Christ as the central heartbeat of their fellowship with God. They've lost sight of, of this glorious relationship that comes through Christ and, and Christ alone. And so we need to see here, we can't, we can't clean ourselves up enough to be acceptable to God. We can't somehow get into this mindset to think that if we carry out this thing and this thing and do this thing and live morally in this way that we somehow earn God's favor to a greater degree. All right? That's not the point of the gospel nor the point of the Christian life. We, we can't keep the law particularly and specifically enough to attain the standard of God's holiness and of perfection. So I'm speaking to us now. We, we can't do enough goodness on our own to cause God to say, you know what, in the history of the world, I've never seen anyone who's as good or morally upright as, insert your name here, they're, they're good enough to come before me on their own merit. They don't need the death of my son to pay for their sins because they've never sinned, right? That's ludicrous. 
Never has God said that, nor will he say that, according to Scripture, aside from the work of Christ. This is what Christ has done. He has given himself. And so for the Galatians, he's calling them to put Christ back at the center. But I want us to see that Galatians does more than just refute legalism, as if we're trying to just carry out and obey all the laws. I I think Paul is calling us to see the necessity of Christ not only being the center of our lives as individuals, but as families, even as a church family. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, the necessity for, for the Holy Spirit to guide our lives. And so what we see in verses 8 and 9 is really an invitation to return to grace. An invitation to return to grace. Paul goes out on a limb and he says, listen, if someone comes to you, if it's us, if it's an angel from heaven who should preach to you a a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. In fact, Paul sees that distorting the gospel is a serious charge. The word for accursed there is the word anathema. And it speaks of divine curse, God's judgment, two times. Verse 8 and verse 9, Paul almost repeats this phrase, this sentence, verbatim. And so we see that distorting the gospel of Jesus is worthy of being cursed. Distorting the gospel of Jesus can be adding to or even taking away from the requirements of salvation. So to understand distorting the gospel, I think we need to understand the essentials of the gospel, right? I mean, it makes sense. If we're going to know what it's not, we need to know what the gospel is. And so Paul will elaborate on this throughout Galatians. But let me just pause to say that we as believers, we ought to know those foundational elements of the gospel. At this point, everybody's thinking, okay, which one? Uh, we, we should know this as a, as a believer, right? We should know the truth of the gospel and be able to distinguish between that which is not the truth of the gospel. So we can look back to Acts 13 and 14 to see how Paul presented the gospel to the churches as he was preaching. Jesus is the Son of God. That is, he's deity co-equal, co-eternal with God. He's the promised Messiah, that he lived a sinless life, a life of righteous perfection. He never sinned while he was on the earth. He lived perfectly. He died for our sin to redeem us, that is to purchase us, purchase our sin debt before God, and to make us have right relationship, to reconcile us, to bring us in the right relationship with God. And then also, a necessary element of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news, is that he was bodily resurrected from the grave. He rose from the grave. This shows that God has validated all that Christ did and said, and that he has triumphed over the penalty of sin, death. He has triumphed over sin. And we would also affirm Christ's ascension into heaven, given his Holy Spirit, to reside within us as believers. We look to the Apostles' Creed and and recite that portion in the Apostles' Creed, which helps us. That was the point of the Apostles' Creed, 
to, to help us remember this definition or this defense of the faith. In an age of radical pluralism, we, we can't sacrifice the truth for political correctness. According to Scripture, those who don't know Jesus Christ are not saved. Those who don't know Jesus Christ will suffer an eternity condemned to hell. You know, this goes against the, the pluralistic society that we live in, to which people would often say, how dare you be so narrow-minded as to speak and say that you know the only way to heaven. So this is what Scripture says. I would advocate that the way we present that truth would be as winsome as possible, but we can't get away from this foundational truth of the gospel. You know, this all, all roads don't lead to the same place. Jesus speaks of the narrow gate, that there's a narrow gate and a narrow path and that there are few who find it. So what, what am I saying? I'm saying that there are ways that we too can be tempted to dilute the gospel, right? There are also ways that we can be tempted to add to the gospel. Paul's warning to the Galatians ought to be a shot across the bow of our lives so that we would examine our own spiritual formation and our own walk with God so that we as Christians might have a joy and a richness in our fellowship with the Lord. So here's some questions. Are we living, am I, make it personal, am I living with spiritual complacency in my life? Have I begun thinking that holiness is optional in my Christian life? If the answer to these questions is yes, then perhaps what we've done is we've distorted the gospel of God's grace because such a life is inconsistent with God's grace. Are we beginning to believe in a false hope then somehow? Listen to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we can't fall into the trap thinking that just because we prayed a prayer or just because we can trust in eternal security that we're done with growing in Christ, that we're done with walking by the Spirit, that we're finished with pursuing a a loving relationship with our Lord, with the God of all creation, the God of grace, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can't can't fall into that trap or or think that, that we, because we've been Christians for X number of years, don't need to spend time cultivating our relationship with Jesus Christ. That path is a path to spiritual complacency. That path is a path to joyless Christian living. That path is a path to the place where the Galatians have ended up. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
you know, adding to the gospel of Christ for salvation is troubling, equally troubling. Some add things we're aware of, like tongues, to to requirement of salvation. If you don't speak in tongues, then you're not truly saved. Or others add the sacraments. Uh, if you haven't gone through these sacraments or had these sacraments, and you can't be certain of your salvation. Others even add baptism. Some say if you don't do this or that, then you must not be a Christian. Others, instead of trusting in Christ for their salvation, trust in a, a set of spiritual disciplines for their salvation. And if they fail to read their Bible or memorize Scripture or pray fervently, then they, they feel as if they've lost their salvation. You see what I'm saying here? There needs to be a balance in our approach to Christian living. And that balance happens when Christ is the centermost point of our lives as disciples. Paul's challenging us in this way, that Christ would be at the center. He's challenging us to return to grace, remembering what he has done through Christ for our salvation. Do you need to return to grace today? Return to this understanding, the simple yet profound message of the hope of the gospel. If you do, I pray that you'll take time this morning as we prepare to celebrate the hope of the gospel with the table meal, the Lord's Supper. If we prepare to do this, take time to prepare your own heart and mind. Return to grace. Confess the goodness of God. Praise him. Seek his forgiveness. Seek to live joyful, fulfilled Christian life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we worship you this morning and prepare our own hearts and minds to worship you, I pray, God, that you would fill us with your joy. Even if there has been stumbling in our lives because we've realized even this morning that we've, we've grown tired, complacent, apathetic. We've stopped pursuing holiness. We've been trusting in other things to give us vitality and spiritual life, but yet we have forsaken all of this. We've forsa- in, in all of this, we've forsaken just knowing Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we want to return to that. And what better way to return to that than than this morning to celebrate the hope of eternal life through partaking of the bread and the cup. So, Lord, we look forward to this Lord's Supper this morning, and we ask your blessing on it. And now, Lord, we pray that as we respond to you in spirit and in truth, you would look within us and strengthen us and purify us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.